Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Peter Scher joins us now, Economy Security's Head of Macro Strategy. Peter, what a couple of weeks this has been. Are you leaning into this? Leaning into some of the euphoria that we can all feel? Yeah, I'm a little bit cautious. I think we have to make it through Tesla's inclusion. I think a lot of this Band-Aid stimulus has already been priced in. So I'm leaning into a little bit, and I still really expect a big rotation where the have-not stocks do well, because next year I expect stimulus, but I expect, you know, proper stimulus, where we really focus on job creation, where we're going to get a big bang for the buck, maybe involve an infrastructure bank, get public-private. So I view this current stimulus, it's nice, but it's nowhere near sufficient for what we need to get real economic growth. Well, let's get the policy call right first, and then we can get to the market call. The policy call this year has just been the only call to get right, and then you've absolutely nailed the rest of it, leaning to risk. The policy call, you called this an aid band-aid. Peter, it's $908 billion what's on offer today. Is that a Band-Aid these days? Unfortunately, it is. As we're shutting down more and more businesses, I think we have to make sure those people receive some sort of compensation. So this is more just to keep things going, in, as I see it. And we're not seeing true economic spending where we're going to get real growth. We're not seeing enough spending towards rebuilding manufacturing fixing some of our infrastructure, making sure we catch up and surpass other countries on 5G technology. So that's what I expect to happen next year. And that's where we'll get the real boost. This for now, I think, is really just covering up the problems that are coming from this resurgence of COVID cases. Covering up the problems, is that enough to justify the rally that we've seen on the heels of expected uh, support financially from Washington, D.C., and potentially the end of the pandemic at some point next year? Yeah, I think we're reasonably priced. I think the market's kind of figured out the pandemic. We have to make it through this struggle right now. <clears throat> but ultimately, with vaccines and treatments and everything improving, we will get through. And some point next year, the economy should look very good. And that's why, again, even today, you're starting to see some of the you know small caps, value stocks continue to outperform big tech as this belief sinks in that, hey, we will have something that resembles a normal economy. It won't be work from home necessarily. It won't be going back to the office. But there's a lot going on. There's a lot of reason for optimism. There'll be ongoing central bank support. I think the Treasury Department will work well with the Fed. So I don't think we're mispriced. I just think we're due for a little pullback, especially surrounding this Tesla inclusion in the S&P 500, which occurs at the close Friday. Okay, so we'll get to Tesla perhaps, but I'm wondering about Airbnb and DoorDash and some of these other IPOs that are coming out with valuations that are reminiscent of the tech bubble. I mean, the idea that they doubled in price, does it give you a feeling of froth or is this also reasonably valued? You know, I think that's, typical for these sorts of very hot IPOs where you don't necessarily want to squeeze every last cent out. You're only releasing a small number of shares. So it sounds like the company maybe left money on the table, but the bulk of their shares are still kind of held in reserve that they can issue going forward. So I, I'm not worried about that. I think there's been a lot of you know hyperactive trading. We do see a lot of these small accounts participating. Whether these prices all last or not, it's a little bit you know up in the air. Um, Again, I think this is really going to depend on what we get in terms of policy next year. And partly what we haven't talked about is the negative potential for policy. Does Do we see tax increases again, especially at the corporate level? And then some of these valuations might look a little bit more frothy. Peter, do you think that comes on the table, that conversation at some point in 21? You know, we've been looking at this market as 
we think Congress and the Senate and the president are going to try and address the, you know, everyone's been talking about this K-shaped recovery, that downward slope with a K. I think that gets addressed, right? And that's all good. That's the positive. That's the stimulus. The question is that upward slope with a K. Do they do something to punish that? Do they say, hey, you've been really successful, <laughs> so we want to take something away from you? Or do they let that slide? I think for the economy, it's probably indifferent. For markets, it's much better if they let it slide. I think a lot will hinge on that Georgia election. January 5th, Peter, for you, is that when you start to establish what your year outlook really looks like after that event? Yeah, I think right now we've got a base case of we're going to get some decent amount of stimulus because I think the Republicans are on board. They kind of failed to get any sort of stimulus done, which, you know, of all the things I would have expected President Trump to be good at, it was building things. We did not get any infrastructure done. So I think some level that's going to be done regardless of the outcome. I think the outcome is going to switch how much. So if the Democrats win, we'll see more spending. I also expect it to switch the mix. So we'll see a much bigger environmental and sustainability focus if the Democrats win the Senate. I think less so if the Republicans retain the Senate. So given all this fiscal support that you're expecting and fiscal stimulus, actual stimulus next year, Treasury yields, are we going to see them above 1%? Uh, how high can they possibly get? No, I think we get them above 1% fairly quickly. I'm kind of in the near term, call it the next few weeks, thinking we're between one and one and a quarter. I think it's hard to get much above even 150. I think the Federal Reserve will work very closely with the Treasury Department to control any rise. And again, markets, I think, will be fine if we see a rising Treasury yield. So just as long as it's not a rapidly rising Treasury yield. Though, again, to me, that would really help these small economies, those cyclicals, and probably less helpful yeah. for some of the big, large tech valves. Yellen and Powell working hand in hand. <laughs> Peter Chair, great catch up, sir. Peter Chair of Academy Securities. Peter, thanks for everything this year as well. Have a fantastic Christmas if we don't talk again. Peter Chair there of Academy Securities on this market. Brian Weinstein joins us now. Morgan Stanley, head of global fixed income. Brian, let's talk about the other event of the week. I'm not even sure the Brexit is the top of the list for many people. This Wednesday is the Federal Reserve decision. What are you looking for from the Fed this Wednesday? Yeah, good morning, Jonathan, and, and good move on, on Brexit. Rather not, not not talk about that. So the, listen, the Fed will be interesting. I mean, we think it's a real close call, um, you know, 50-50, which is not, I know it sounds like a cop-out, but at the end of the day, we think they probably won't um, go for, for moving the, uh, the the extension of the buying. Um, better to save it for later if rates rise. Better to save it for dry powder. If you look at the world, we'll probably get some stimulus. The equity market's doing great. Break-evens are creeping higher. I think they'll give us some language. I think they're going to try to link more closely um, to the uh, average inflation target. Remind us they're not going to raise rates. There's a couple of things that they could do to tell us maybe when they'll look at this uh, extension of, of, of the buying, the, the average maturity of the buying. But yeah, it's a close call. They could do it. I don't think it's a huge deal if they don't, so long as they give us some language and rates probably keep creeping higher. Well, Brian, you mentioned break-evens, inflation expectations creeping higher. Do you think that could be the green light for nominal yields to start to pick up through 1%, maybe towards your target through 21? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, uh, I, I think that they could move higher. I mean, three, yeah, the, the 321 seems a, a while away. Um, but getting tenure notes into the 1% range, I think, is, is, is a very uh, likely outcome. 
If you look at across the world, Australia, New Zealand, for example, we've seen rates start to, to creep higher there. Even though the central banks have, have stayed dovish, um, it just at some point isn't enough anymore, and the markets get restless when you see growth, when you see break-evens. I think stimulus would be the last piece of that uh, in the U.S. Remember, we need stimulus, right? The output gap is still uh, big. We still need growth in 2021 and 22 um, to, to offset the lack of growth this year. Um, so stimulus would be a big piece of getting rates higher, along with the Fed not being aggressive on extending their purchases. So let's talk about the consequences of uh, additional quantitative easing purchases, additional purchases by the Federal Reserve of Treasuries and other central banks around the world. I know Morgan Stanley has a forecast of about $2.8 trillion of bond purchases or asset purchases by the major central banks next year. How much of that has already been priced into riskier debt versus yet to be really factored in? That's a great question, and one and one that we struggle with a lot. There's, there's no question that a lot of it's been priced in, right? We, we've, I mean, how is stimulus not priced in? How is the vaccine not priced in? But the market still um, enjoys when these when these events happen. Um, and, and listen, I think it's done well, and we do get the growth. There's a reason to believe that this can continue. So it's hard to look at risk assets and say that none of this is known. The question I think is which risk assets does, does this help the most? And so when you look at um, treasuries, and you look at investment-grade credit, where the, the most help was given, that's probably where the least upside is. When you look at the high-yield markets, the loan markets, the equity markets, um, some of the emerging markets, um, anything that benefits from a weaker dollar, um, there are many, many things that, that you could still have great outcomes in. Um, you just have to have some of these uh, actual come, actually come to fruition. So a lot of investment managers come on the show and they say, well, it's time to pick particular bonds and not necessarily indexes. And other people will say they're talking their book because they're active managers. Is this <laughs> going to be a specific bond, a specific company story where you end up with certain defaults and others that do just fine? Or is this still an index story, still a big macro beta play on just more QE and more risk on? Well, listen, as an active manager, we do like picking bonds, and certainly this has been a good year for, for indices. Um, although, listen, it's been a great year for, for some stock pickers, right? Some of those uh, certain um, tech stocks and things like that have done tremendously well away from the indices. Um, but, yes, I think if you stay in this world where, as I said, treasuries and investment-grade credit uh, have done the heavy lifting um, and you're going to go into these markets now, you, it's harder to buy an EM index. It's, it's not as smart to buy a high-yield index. There are lots of active things that you should be doing in sectors that you should be avoiding. Um, so, uh, you know, the beta play is probably um, uh, towards the tail. And now some of the bigger winners here will be more actively selected based on the outcomes of where the stimulus goes, um, which EM countries are stronger, um, which EM corporates have better balance sheets. Those things should matter more now that the beta rally is, uh, is at least mostly played out. Brian, let's just wrap things up there. I think it's really important to that word avoid that you just used. A lot of people come on shows like this at the moment talking about embracing cyclicality. Any cyclicality, any cyclical areas of this market, Brian, that you would avoid? You know, at the same time, it's a lot harder because the cyclical nature, it's just, it's just a bit less cyclical. Um, listen, I think when I, when, when I say avoid some of the things in, in beta, when we look at the, at the high-yield high markets, we think there's still be plenty of, of defaults, right? We still have energy problems working through the system. In EM, there are still plenty of countries um, where, where that matters and where, where stimulus is not getting to, to those countries, and they can't do it because of their balance sheet. So I think, no, I don't think there's anything in fixed income as a, as a sector that you need to avoid. I do think it's much more micro, uh, which makes it a little bit harder to, to, to go into in detail. Brian, brilliant to hear from you, as always. Brian Weinstein there of Morgan Stanley. Thank you, sir. 
The vaccinations begin this week. It is a massive moment in the United States. And joining us now is Dr. Joseph Cachon, Ascension Chief Medical Officer. Doctor, fantastic to get you with us on the program. Let's just start first up. Have you got the vaccine in-house? And talk me through how big this week is. Yeah, this is a big week. Nine months of, of, of what we've been dealing with and what the public has been dealing with. Uh, we're very excited. Um, our vac- the vaccines have, are arriving today uh, on, our, on, on many of our hospitals. We have 150 hospitals across 20 states, and uh, our, we anticipate vaccine deliveries today. And we've been preparing for that uh, for the last eight weeks. We've had teams working uh, every day on the logistics and um, and delivery of the vaccine. So we're really excited about this. Uh, we feel this is the way to get us on the other side of the pandemic. We all hope that's the case, Doctor. When you look at the rollout, it's pretty clear to everyone, frontline workers, the most at risk in society first. Are the decisions on who to give it to in-house first, Doctor, in the initial rollout, the first few weeks, is that difficult? How do you come around making those kind of calls? You know, we, we uh, really have strongly encouraged our employees to um, to get the vaccine. Um, and our employees are stepping up just like they have through the entire pandemic and are volunteering. Uh, we obviously uh, can't vaccinate everybody in a single unit in the same day. So, uh, frankly, we're just asking people to schedule their vaccine uh, with us. And uh, we are managing that scheduling process just like we would any other appointment. Our frontline workers are really the um, hospital workers, both nurses, our respiratory therapists, patient care techs. Those are the people that we're prioritizing. And critical care nurses in particular, which really have bear a huge part of the brunt of this, uh, as well as the respiratory therapists and patient care techs, we we really want to get them vaccinated early. Um, And so we're prioritizing that group. Our frontline physicians are also very important. Our critical care specialists, our infectious disease specialists, our pulmonologists. We uh, were just uh, we're very excited for our employees and really strongly encouraging them to get the vaccine. Dr. Cachona, it's interesting how the initial rollout will be viewed as a template for the further and more extensive rollout that is expected perhaps in the first half of next year. How complicated is it logistically given the cold temperatures that you have to keep the vaccine in addition to some of the other just typical vaccine uh, logistical issues? You know, it's um, it is a challenge. You know, we have to store between minus 60 and minus 80 degrees. We have to be prepared to receive the vaccines cold from Pfizer. Um, I will say that Pfizer, I've been on logistics calls with the Pfizer folks. They've done an incredible job orchestrating this. And so I'm um, very uh, um, impressed at the way Pfizer has approached this. Uh, It has uh, it has posed a problem. We've had to go out and get a bunch of freezers. Uh, some of those where we can't get freezers, Pfizer's made it so that the shipping uh, boxes that they come in can be recharged with dry ice and uh, we can store them in, uh, in the shipping container. So uh, I, I think they have done an incredible job uh, doing that and, and providing us backup plans in case freezer uh, freezers were unavailable. As and- you can imagine, it was hard to, uh, the number of freezers that we need for a health system our size uh, we're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. 
Which raises a question about who pays for all of the extra equipment that's required in order to roll this out in an effective way. I know there has been some money appropriated that has not yet been passed in Washington, D.C. Beyond your particular organization, Ascension uh, Hospitals and Healthcare Facilities, is this going to be expensive? Who is going to pay for it at the end of the day? You know, as part of our health system, you know, uh, our CEO told us at the beginning, um, take care of our associates, take care of our patients, and worry less about the, uh, the economics. Uh, and in a global pandemic like this, with uh, the number of people that have been affected by this and the number of lives lost, we have put um, our, our patients and our associates first. And as for that reason, um, we haven't thought about that as much. It is something that weighs on our mind uh, over the long haul, but for the short term, we're really focused on delivering this vaccine and, um, and, and for us, we're paying for it. You know, the government has provided us CARES Act funding, uh, but we are paying for it out of Ascension. And this is part of normal business for us. There are technologies that come up all the time that we have to pay for uh, before somebody actually reimburses us. So this is just part of normal business for us. And, um, you know, our commitment to this is uh, overwhelming, uh, to say the least. Doctor, just before we let you run, I think a massive issue over the last nine months, as you know, has been compliance around social distancing, mask wearing, etc. It's not just about the first vaccination. You've got to get them to come back. They've got to come back yeah. for the second, the second hit. It's going to be hard enough to get people to step up for the first one. Can you walk me through the kind of techniques, the marketing around this that you think is effective, that you'd like to see in the coming months? Yeah, it's really about education, 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 you know, and we have significant issues in um, some of our populations that have trust issues. Um, you know, we have the black African-American population, the Hispanic population that have trust issues with the medical community. We have to continue to educate. We have to be culturally sensitive. We have to use our leaders, our, our Hispanic leaders and our black African-American leaders to actually help educate the, those populations to, to give them the trust to get this vaccine because it's a very important you know, the more vulnerable uh, you are uh, to illness, uh, the more the sicker you are, um, the, the more likely this vaccine is to help you. Uh, and so we have to get that message out. It's going to be about education, education, education. And I, I just want to emphasize one other thing. You know, as part of this whole thing, we've been we've been absorbed with with COVID, uh, but there is a secondary pandemic that's out there right now, and that is people are avoiding yep. care, avoiding coming to our hospitals. We're we're strongly encouraging people not only to seek the vaccine, but also to continue to seek care for other medical issues. Doctor, we would love to continue the conversation with you through the next couple of weeks and the next several months as this rollout really picks up. Dr. Kachan there, thank you very much, sir. Joining us now is Lara Rain, FS Investments Chief Economist. Lara, if you could build on that, that would be fantastic. What are you looking for this Wednesday? Yeah, you know, so I, I agree. I think, you know, they've talked about wanting to do something fairly soon. I think they are going to try to be more specific about locking in those forward expectations of continued financial market support and economic support. I think something that we really forget is if we look back at prior expansions, we don't know when this recession is going to end. But if you kind of look back 1991, 2001, the Fed was actively cutting interest rates in the first 18 months of those expansions. Like they are really used to actively supporting an economy as we're coming out of a recession. And I don't think it's a, it's a you know, it's not a coincidence if you look back in 2009, 
interest rates were at zero, you know, puts them in a sticky spot where they can't really, you know, do that traditional support. So the most active quantitative easing that we really got was 2011 and 2013. Like that is just a sign of how, you know, years into the expansion, they were still having to support our economy. So I really think obviously very different recessions, very different expansions, I, I would expect. But the point is that they are really gearing markets up for the idea that they are going to have to be accommodating them for years to come. And I think Mike's point is important. You know, markets love to look for a change. They love to be forward looking. And, you know, they're not worried about changing expectations right now of a rate hike. They're worried about those five-year forward expectations and any kind of yield curve steepening. They want to make sure to sit on that. Laura, this is a really important point, the idea that the Fed has run out of a lot of ammunition, given where rates are, given how much money has already been pumped into the system by their monetary policies. Are you suggesting that based on where they are, based on their ammunition, they're not being easy enough, that they're not necessarily increasing their purchases enough to support uh, the expansion as they have in the past, just based on where we are and how receptive the market is to their measures? You know, Lisa, that, that's a tricky question because it goes both ways. Like, what more can they do? I mean, I think they have actively said, you know, they're, they're all, you know, really squawking when Mnuchin's trying to shut down the Main Street lending facility. You know, I think they would acknowledge that they want to do more and that they really are upset that some of those pathways to impact the economy directly might be taken away. The, you know, I think they feel very comfortable that they can help financial conditions. The question is what that's really doing for the main street economy. So um, that I think that's really the issue. But absolutely, I think they will argue that they need to be doing more. They want to be doing more, and that you know, as to your point, they've they've kind of run out of traditional mechanisms. So you know, how creative can they get? They are really pushing the envelope. In the meantime, you were flicking at the economy and the hurt that's currently out there. We're going to be getting retail sales later this week, as John was talking about, and the unemployment uh, filings as well on Thursday. What are you looking for? How close are we to a double dip versus the expansion that people are already pricing in? I think we're pretty close. Uh, and again, that's not atypical during you know longer downturns that we get you know some quarters the rise, some quarters fall. I certainly don't think it's going to be another Q2. But you know, think about, you know, we, we're so used to looking at seasonally adjusted data. We forget that when it's not seasonally adjusted, so much spending activity and hiring takes place in this holiday period. So we're already seeing claims move in the other direction. We're seeing, um, you know, we've already seen auto sales down in November. So I think we're gonna see a decline in November retail sales. And December, I think, you know, you can really get some pain just inflicted upon the fact that normally seasonal hiring is, you know, plus five million in December when it comes to you know retail uh, facilities and holiday shopping. So the December numbers could just because of technical reasons look pretty ugly. So I think it's you know wh whether quarterly GDP you end up splitting it across two quarters, you don't actually get into negative territory. We have a resilient consumer, resilient businesses. Those are that's the best that we can hope for to power us through what I think is really a, a tricky time for the economy. But um, when you look at hiring, you know, you're seeing those permanent layoffs increase. I think that's a that's going to be a concern going forward. 
Larry, you mentioned retail sales. A negative print maybe on Wednesday. A lot of people agree with you. We're looking for negative 0.3% month on month on the headline number. Claims the day after. You mentioned claims as well. Claims have been moving in the wrong direction the last couple of weeks, as you say. Lara, claims haven't exactly given you a clear read on where payrolls might go because there's just been this massive churn in the US economy. How useful do you think that is as an indicator for what's happening in this economy right now? I think I you know I always call initial claims the canary in the coal mine. I feel like the direction that it takes, how fast it moves, really has enormous predictive power. But it has been very hard and it's really stymied a lot of us because you can't draw the claims in terms of just plugging in as an exogenous factor to, into your model to get the employment number has really weakened in, in that regard. So I still think it's important to watch claims. That number last week really confirmed what we expect, which is that you know we've seen the mobility data shrinking a little bit. Whether or not communities are imposing lockdowns or whether people are just selecting to be uh, to stay at home more. Either way, you know, we're seeing some slowdown in economic activity, you know, in November and most likely in December. So I think claims are still a critical indicator, but it's just to your point, it's making that that monthly payroll forecast a lot more tricky because we're used to using that as a strong input. And it's kind of been all over the place. Yeah. Laura, great to catch up to get your thoughts. Always appreciate your time. Laura Rain there, FS Investments Chief Economist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.